Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. We're about to begin our eighth session in the book of Esther. By the end of the evening, you'll have a better conception of the power that is available to you. You'll see agreement between the word and the spirit that births life among the nations. Every believer in this room will grow in their understanding and their application of the believer's authority in Christ. While you let that revelation gestate for a minute within you, oh yeah, we also want to tell you that we're pretty darn excited about tonight, as well as the next two sessions, number nine and number ten. We feel like you should know that we've deliberately avoided going into some of the very special features in the manuscript that will add to your appreciation for the level of inspiration in this amazing book whose name means hidden. We've done that in order to leave room for a session at the end, our 10th session, that's going to occur in only two weeks, and we wanted to build anticipation. It's funny, as we're studying, we have mixed feelings about the progress that we're making. On one hand, we're excited about everything that the Lord has shown this body. And on the other hand, we're not quite ready to see this little adventure come to an end. We can promise you this, tonight's session and the next two, well, they will not be lacking in revelation relating to the fervent declaration that God is sovereign, He is righteous, and He redeems and resurrects His people. Last session we learned what a difference 24 hours can make. Haman, who famously stated, and that's not all, (laughs) while basking in a self-intoxicated and deluded declaration of his own greatness, he found out what a difference a day can make. Perhaps he would have done well to remember the proverb in chapter 27, verse 1. It says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Wow. On the other hand, What a difference a 24-hour period made for Esther and Mordecai. Perhaps they had been meditating on the words of their forefather David when he wrote from his own experiences and said in Psalm 37, starting in verse 34, Hope in the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are destroyed... You will see it. Amen. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree. But he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. In any case, we're going to move into a chapter where Haman is no more. And both Esther and Mordecai receive land, authority, and deliverance. So each week, one of the most difficult tasks is all of the things that we don't find time to share with you. That's true. (laughs) Tonight, we wanted to do something just a little bit different. Rather than review chapter 7 with you, we thought it might be fun to just share a few of the shadow and types that we didn't make, that didn't make it into last week's time frame. Are you guys okay with that? Oh, yeah. Of course. So you may remember 
that in chapter 7 the king was in the garden and Haman was outside of it. Then Xerxes the king walked back into the banquet hall just in time to see Haman trying to uh, kibosh or subdue oh. Esther. Do you remember who took action in that moment to cover Haman's face? Anybody remember? That's right. It wasn't Xerxes. It wasn't even Esther. The people who rose up to subdue Haman were actually the household servants. Yeah. And of course, Arbona testified about the uh, crucifixion and also the righteous deeds of the Jew Mordecai in that moment. This reminds us an awful lot of Romans 16, verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions, those Haman-like people, and who put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings that you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So just as Xerxes does not physically restrain Haman, but instead... It occurs by the hands of his household servants. Paul seems to be suggesting that Satan is actually put under feet of the servants of God. You see, we act in the authority and the power of the king. But in many ways, it is our testimony to the crucifixion and righteous deeds of the Jew that is what places Satan under our feet. It seems that when Jesus said, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy, he actually meant it. Yeah. This could really change your perspective from waiting for God to do everything to a perspective that sees God as waiting for you to act in his will and authority to do the things that he already desires. Come on now, That needs a better amen. So another interesting thought on that note is that in Esther chapter 7 verse 8, when Haman's face was covered, it may hint at something far worse than a simple executioner's hood. Why is it necessary to cover his face? It's a great question. The answer may be that Haman has proven that he is not worthy to see the face of the king. In fact, he is permanently separated from seeing Xerxes' face ever again. This actually reminds us of a passage in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, picking up in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So here the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire a thousand years before Satan. Just as the two eunuchs who plotted to assassinate Xerxes back in Esther 2 were thrown into execution Uh prior to Haman. Are you following the parallel 
The men in the story of Esther merely died in the plain natural sense, but Revelation describes Satan's torment as forever and ever, eternal. Hanan's face being covered may speak of this verse found in the same chapter of verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Just as Haman would never look upon the face of the king again, and also met his end. This could possibly be a romance indicating the second death that eternally separates the devil and all unbelievers from the presence of the king for an eternity. If this is the case, and it is, yeah. then the cover on Haman's face stands as a warning to all regarding the way that sinful actions harden your heart and darken your understanding so that you cannot even see the king or his will. You all following us so far? Yes. Well, then we can consider Ephesians 4.17 as a warning based on reflections on Haman. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, particularly those Amalekites, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God, almost like you put a bag over their head, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. While Paul is describing Gentiles in a general sense, when you remember that he's a master of the Tanakh, it may be that Paul is more specifically thinking of Haman as an example. That's because Haman's thinking was futile. Haman was literally darkened. In that, his face was covered prior to his death and his separation from God eternally. Even the phrase, with the continual lust for more, is an apt description of Haman throughout the book of Esther. Isn't it? What we would take away from this is that every, say every, every, every sin is like beginning the process of slipping the bag over your head. So that you can no longer see the face of the king, and it is the prelude to your eternal separation from God. This is what makes repentance so beautiful, by the way. Repentance removes the bag from your head, and it allows you to see the king's will clearly again. Guys, would you like to do another shadow inside? No, they've had enough. (laughs) Check out this slide with us tonight. Banquets and Esther. You know... There are seven banquets in Esther on the left side of this screen. It's really interesting, isn't it? So you have one through seven on the left side, and on the right side, what do you know? We have Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. Tonight, we would like to submit to you that these seven banquets in Esther correlate to the seven feasts of Israel. So let's talk about banquet number one. This is found in Esther 1.3, and the banquet is given by Xerxes, and it lasts 180 days. This could be thought of like Passover, because the king is unifying his people against foreign powers and foreign gods. Kind of like Exodus 12.12, where it is judgment on the gods of Egypt. 
Tremaine's banquet number two in Esther 1-5, very interesting. <laughs> this is also given by Xerxes, and it is after the first, there was a special seven days. This could be thought of like unleavened bread, which also has seven days, mm -hmm. because it is the final preparation to unify the war effort without any contaminating compromises Ooh. remaining in his house. Come on. Mm. Which brings us to our third feast. In Esther 1.9, this is the one given by Vashti for the women. Well, this could be thought of like the Feast of First Fruits in the Bible, because the first fruits of all Xerxes' efforts were intended to culminate in a wife that was fully with him and reflected him to the whole kingdom. Amen. Which brings us to our fourth banquet. In Esther 2.8, this is called Esther's Banquet. Now, in this banquet, you remember that there were gifts that were being given. There was no taxation. And Xerxes was giving with a royal liberality. Well, this could be thought of like Pentecost. Because the king suspends taxation. He gives gifts. And he shows royal liberality in regards to joy over his new bride. What about the fifth banquet in Esther chapter 5 and verse 4? Yum to ruah. This was given by Esther. It was the first one. That was given by Esther. If you think about that first banquet, could be thought of like the Feast of Trumpets. Because it was an ominous warning to some that judgment was quickly approaching. And of course, salvation to others. <laughs> that brings us to banquet number six, found in Esther 7, verse 1. This was also given by Esther, her second banquet. This could be thought of like the Day of Atonement, because at this point, or at this banquet, the Jews were saved and the enemies are condemned. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, come yeah. on. That brings us to our seventh banquet, which is not one that we have uh, taught on together yet. But Esther 9.22 is a banquet that happens when there is an edict from tonight's chapter that finds its fulfillment in chapter 9.22. See, there are things being set up this evening that will come to pass and they're worth celebrating. Purim, feast will ensue, joy, gift-giving, and celebration, and even remembering the poor Jews in the land. Well, this time frame could be thought of like the tabernacles, because the salvation of the Jews has occurred, and the nations are celebrating along with the Jews, oh, come on. and many are joined to them. Yeah. And this is how poor Gentiles now have the ability to share in Israel's inheritance. Oh, have you all had enough? No. We could go on to tell you that the book of Esther picks up with a king in a garden. Then has a man condemned to die on a cross right after the king leaves the garden. We could tell you that Jesus, our king, visited with Adonai in the garden of Gethsemane and then was crucified outside of the garden. Then was raised again in a garden, even mistaken for a gardener. But I don't think our timetable tonight is going to permit us to parallel all of those details for you. We could also tell you that Harbona means donkey driver. And that he could be seen testifying to the truth in a way that drives the story into the king's will. And that this is our job as believers. Come on, Harbona. But again, time will not permit this evening. 
it is probably better to prepare you for the text tonight and then jump into chapter 8. Would y'all like to get prepared for the text? Yes. So we're going to pick up on the same day as the banquet where Haman was bagged and tagged. Double tap. Got the limit. We will move on to see the story go from annihilation of the Jewish people to the hope of deliverance for the Jewish people. Amen. Since our church has been discussing the continuous cycles of crucifixion and resurrection in the lives of real believers, this chapter should strike you as particularly pertinent in our own daily application. <coughs> Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Israel has never been allowed to avoid crucifying moments. Instead, Adonai provides them with resurrection power to overcome within. Somebody say within. Within. Within, within those moments. Amen. So as we pray tonight, remember that the Jewish nation has faced their own death in the hope of the resurrection perpetually. Yeah. Yeah. In every generation. Yeah. In every location. In every circumstance imaginable. Simply put, this method is how Adonai forms all who are called unto his promise. Amen. Amen. That's true. One last note before prayer. We have a quote by a man named Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I'm sure some of you know him. He once said, The Jew has attended the funeral of every one of the nations that tried to terminate him. Guys, tonight, we want to affirm that truth for Israel and also for you as individuals. Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life. And when you believe in him, you will live even if you die. We will all witness the fiery second death of the wicked on the great day of judgment. And we will also witness salvation breaking forth simultaneously. So we have prepared you pretty well for the chapter. If you haven't noticed, our introductions usually give away something. You just haven't noticed yet. (laughs) But these are the themes we'll be discussing tonight. Is there an anointed man of God that would like to stand up and pray that we can grasp these beautiful things? Father of glory, Father, we bless your name. I thank you for your presence among us. Thank you for bringing us here, Father. That your spirit moves among us, Father. That your spirit has brought us and is raising us up, Father. In the name of Yeshua, I ask you that you would allow us, Father, that you lift up our thoughts, lift up our hearts, that you allow us to come close to you and receive from you. Let our thoughts be enlightened by your light. Let our bodies be resurrected. Let our souls be raised up by you right now, Father. In the name of Yeshua, let the words that come forth pierce us. Let the words that come forth restore us, Father. Bring us to the knowledge of you and the glory in the face of Messiah. We love you and we're remaining you in the name of Yeshua. Hallelujah. So at this moment, we let the wife of Eric Stevens, who just happens to be a grandma, read Esther chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, 
she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the golden gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman's son of Hamadoth, the Agite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews and all the king's providences. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews. I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers, who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy and kill and annihilate any armed forces of any nationality or providence that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed to, for the Jews to do this in all the providences of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every providence and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every providence, in every city, where the, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Oh, so if chapters 1 through 7 did not deepen your understanding of Adonai's sovereignty, surely now in chapter 8 you are seeing that he has been in control the whole time. And we are seeing his plan unfold. With that, we're going to pick up in verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, where Esther had told how he was related to him. 
So the opening verse of this amazing chapter is essential to understanding the story historically as well as its profound symbolism. Have you guys been enjoying the symbolism and the parallels that we are drawing? Esther has been portrayed throughout the book as representative of the faithful Jew who must receive the land. Additionally, she is seen as receiving it from the king who represents Adonai. And it is taken from Haman who had usurped power and authority but ultimately came to its tragic and serendipitous end. This process should remind every believer, anyone who engages with the scripture of Matthew chapter 12. You guys ready for Matthew 12? Yes. We're going to pick up in verse 28 together. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Saints, at the very same time that the religious establishment was veiled to the working of God through Yeshua, he was actually taking steps to bind up the strong man so that the house could be plundered. Jesus was demonstrating faithful actions that constituted the finger of God on earth to give the Jewish people their land. And that, free from usurpers. While Charismatics love to make these verses solely about exorcism, as if that is the biggest struggle facing the kingdom at large. The truth is that the entire ministry of Jesus is actually a demonstration of binding up the strongman powers that are in opposition to his will. Those powers that have kept him from operating in the full promises of God for Israel. Esther's actions, they really do the same. And they provide an excellent parallel for the Messianic community who will also end up possessing the estate of Satan himself. Come on, man. The other thing that the opening verse does is hint at the true reason that Esther is able to do these things. Xerxes has known that Mordecai is a Jew. He has also become aware that Esther is a Jew. In verse 1, Xerxes is becoming aware of their familial connections that are even more intimate than nationality alone. This means that Xerxes, Esther, and Mordecai are all related by marriage and are, in some sense, the same family. Since Xerxes represents Adonai throughout this book, and we've demonstrated that, This strongly hints at the way the family of God is formed. It was Esther, the messianic body, who marries Xerxes, who is Adonai. And in the midst of that covenant, Mordecai, who is the original Jewish source, is reintroduced as having been family to the king since the second chapter of the book. Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, what's even better is that Paul writes about it. Listen to Ephesians 3, 14 through 15. Verse 14 says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Look, we've thrown a lot at you early in our discussions, but it is okay because we will build on it throughout the evening. But for now, just notice something. Mordecai is who Esther comes from. He is the original source. 
and Esther marries Xerxes. Then it is revealed that the king was related to Mordecai from the moment of their marriage. This is Israel producing the messianic movement and marriage to King Jesus in the time period we are living in. What will result from these things is the introduction of Israel back to the king as original family member. Come on, somebody. Let's pick up in verse 2. The king took off his sickness. Which he had reclaimed. Whoa, wait, wait. He had what? Reclaimed. Reclaimed. Repoed it. From Haman. And presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Come on now. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Adonai. Yeah. He reclaims authority from Satan. And he presents it back to the Jewish people. Wow. This is accomplished through the working of the messianic body, though. In order to bind up the strong man and reveal God's will. If you guys remember, it was Esther. Now, Esther, representing the messianic body. It was Esther who clarified the relationship between Mordecai and Xerxes. It's the messianic body that is clarifying the relationship between true Israel and Adonai. Come on. Guys, come on. That's Are you awesome. with us tonight? Yeah. This is gold yeah. right here. Now we see Mordecai, true Israel, united with Esther, the messianic body, operating in total unity and in shalom with Xerxes, come on. Come on. with Adonai. And the will of God is being accomplished on the earth. Yeah. That's awesome. And on a historical note, we've been asserting that Haman wrongly usurped Mordecai back in chapter 2 when he got credit for the assassination plot. That theory is now completely confirmed. You can just say it. We were right. We were right. (laughs) And we know this because Xerxes' first action after the judgment of Haman is to reclaim all the authority and give it to Mordecai, who rightly deserved it. You should probably take note that the kingdom only experiences its true grandeur when Satan is cast down and Israel has the authority promised from the beginning and the messianic body is occupying the former estate of Haman. Come on, man. Since it is profound that the book of Esther actually encapsulates the entire eschatological plan of God and its imagery, it paints a picture. Mordecai is Jesus and true Israel. Well, Esther is the messianic body. And together, they expose Haman or Satan. Either term will work for the story and the narrative of the Bible. And they receive all authority to rule under Xerxes, the great king, who is like God throughout this entire book. As this makes Xerxes or Adonai's authority all and all when this is made right. There could be No better summary of a biblical narrative than this. We'd like to visit 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 28 with you to see how Paul commented on this exact story. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, 
authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. Think about the relationship between Xerxes and Mordecai. Everything is under Mordecai's feet, except Xerxes, who put it all under Mordecai's feet. Right? When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God, or in type, Adonai, or Xerxes, may be all in all. If the connections are not clear to you yet, pray. Adonai will give you insight. The larger plan of God is definitely not centered on your personal salvation. Amen. But rather, the establishment of the true kingdom of God, one without Haman, and one that is unified under Mordecai, who represents both Jesus and true Israel, and Esther, the former orphan, which is the body of Messiah. Now that you've heard that, let's read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. You guys still breathing? Oh, yeah. Yes. Verse 15. It's a very shallow Bible study tonight. (laughs) The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So throughout the book of Esther, Mordecai really has no beauty or majesty to draw people to himself. But through the actions of Esther, through the actions of his body, Mordecai is universally recognized as truly great. And all authority ends up being invested in him. Remember, when we say Jesus is the head, we mean that Jesus is the head of of genetic and spiritual Israel. When we say the body, what we're saying is that the body is made up of the Messianic movement, which includes Jews and orphans like us in this room tonight who are all adopted into Jesus. Now, all of this is happening under the authority of Adonai, Xerxes. Thus, Xerxes is like Adonai, Mordecai is like Jesus, And Esther is like the Messianic body. You all following us so far? Yes. Good, because we're going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and take it just a little bit deeper. Verse 8 starts out, And put everything under their feet. (laughs) In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a little while, 
now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy, listen to this, are of the same family. We're related by marriage. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So Xerxes invests his authority in Mordecai. Esther came from Mordecai and works under Mordecai's authority. Mordecai was made great through all that he suffered and through the testimony of Esther. Guys, this picture is so vivid tonight. Jesus receives all authority from the Father, and we are his body working under his authority and direction. This brings the revelation that we are of the same family. Together, the ruler, together with the regent, together with the relatives, are all the same family. Let's continue in verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagites, which he had devised against the Jews. So we want you to notice that Esther, the messianic body, is seen as pleading with the king or... There we go, Adonai. All right, let's try it again. Notice that Esther, who represents... And seen pleading with the king, who represents... She uses very specific wording, wording saying, the evil plan of payment, the Agagite. On a historical note, it would be common to use such specific wording if the situation was ambiguous or unclear. But that's not the case here. Xerxes is fully aware of who Haman is. Yeah, he Xerxes. killed him 12 hours ago. Yeah, he's fully aware of the plan. Yet Esther says, Haman, the Agagite. What's up with that? This is because Esther is aware that the plan was not merely the invention of Haman, but had its evil inception all the way back in Genesis. Ooh. So let's look at a slide remembering that Agag is an Amalekite and Haman descended from him. You guys see our slide, Amalek from the beginning. So the Amalekites have existed figuratively since the time of Abraham in Genesis 14. Esau married an Amalekite in some sense in Genesis 36. The Amalekites were warmongers who attack Israel while they are at rest in Exodus 17. Also in Exodus 17, Israel has always been forced to respond to the aggression of Amalek. Now the method of warfare with Amalek it's always been a mixture, a mixture of spiritual symbolism and physical warfare and actions. You can see that in verse 11. It has always required chosen men under the raised standard of God to be able to defeat Amalek. That's good. In a spiritual sense, Amalek was first among the nations. Numbers 24 says that clearly. Israel was destined to prevail over Amalek. The yeah. same passage lets you know the final result. Amalek seeks to destroy Israel and focuses on the wearied and weak 
The NIV actually says they waylaid them. Israel, though, is to erase even the memory of Amalek, and they're told that it will take generations to do so. Okay, so while you're staring at our slide, it was very carefully worded. And it was because the Amalekites don't technically exist in the time of Abram. And the use of the word Amalekites is an anachronism. But in Jewish literature, it is also the beginning of a significant hint that the spirit of Amalek is behind almost all hatred of the Jews. While Esau didn't really marry an Amalekite because it was Esau's son that was actually the founder of the Amalekites, it is another serious spiritual hint about the compromised values that caused the spirit of Amalek to prosper in the world all around us. When the actual people called Amalekites show up in the Exodus story, they're a warlike valley-dwelling people that are always seen trying to prevent Israel from receiving the promises of God. So in Jewish theology, this is because the spirit of Amalek is in direct opposition to the promises of Adonai and the establishment of his people. Amalek represents the thought that the strong should dominate the weak, that chance and fortune are to be seen as supreme over even Adonai's sovereignty. They represent the thought that might makes right. In the Jewish view, the Bible is largely comprised of a battle between ethical monotheism as embodied in the law and the spirit of Amalek that wants to deceive and dominate the world. So let's look into the Jewish view of Amalek. Because when we as Gentiles hear of Amalek, we think of people that long died out in the Bible days. That's not quite how the Jews view the spirit of Amalek. As you're looking at the slide, it reads, Therefore, the Torah requires a greater level of vigilance to ensure that Amalek does not influence us. We must constantly be aware of and remember the threat posed by the Amalekite ideology and eliminate any member of the nation which attempts to perpetuate it. Perpetuate. Perpetuate it. What precisely is the subtle evil of Amalek which is so dangerous? Good question. Well, our sages explain. He knows his master and yet intentionally rebels against him. In other words... We are not speaking here of a heretical belief which denies the, the existence of God, for Amalek knows his master. If Amalek simply denied the existence of God or advocated idol worship, any believing Jew would find the matter easy to reject. It is precisely because the Amalekite philosophy recognizes the existence of God, i.e. it knows his master, that it poses a danger for a Jewish person who may easily become sympathetic to this outlook, eventually leading him to rebel against God, heaven forbid. Of course, this is unlikely to happen overnight. For Amalek does not attack by immediately telling a Jew to stop observing the mitzvahs. The threat of Amalek lies in more subtle attempts 
to disconnect a person's knowledge from his practical observance. Hey! Based on the above, we can understand why there are two separate mitzvahs to both remember and eliminate Amalek. So when you are considering this line of thought, remember that Haman had been right alongside the Jewish inhabitants of Persia the entire time. He was right together like wheat and tares. He was right alongside them. His rise to power was right alongside the people of God. There were undoubtedly Jews who were tempted to assimilate to avoid persecution. Haman, Agag, and the spirit of Amalek are not always as obvious in their working as overtly trying to kill you. Sometimes the goal starts off with just trying to corrupt you, which, of course, evolves into killing you. Because you have to put a bag over somebody's head before you kill them. Oh, my goodness. Guys, we have another slide for you. This is going to further your understanding on the Jewish view of Amalek and the spirit of Amalek. Wherever the Jew may go, Amalek follows on his heels. We have known him since first we made our appearance on the stage of the world's history. Amalek has driven us from country to country. He has followed us from nation to nation. It has always been the same story. Jews fleeing from oppression, wandering on deserted tracks, hoping for rest, longing for safety. And when they thought that they found it at last, then we have Exodus 17.8. Then came Amalek. Jews run from Amalek. But Amalek is everywhere. They say the Jew is ubiquitous. Much more so is Amalek. They call us international. Much more so is Amalek. Guys, so... Why is Esther referring so specifically back to a plan that existed before her time and its latest manifestation happening in her time? The answer is that she represents the role of the messianic body in this verse to intercede and to appeal to the king for assistance in facing this spiritual enemy of God's called and chosen people. Agag was an agent of the enemy's attempt to corrupt the people of God. Haman was an agent of the enemy's attempt to kill the people of God. The appeal of the messianic body to our God is to give us victory over the spirit of Amalek. That same spirit of Amalek that seeks to corrupt or kill the people of God. Come on, saints. That's some understanding, isn't it? Yeah. So with that in mind, let's remember the prophecy from the Torah in Numbers 24, 17 through 20. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. Ouch. The skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Then Balaam saw Amalek and uttered this oracle. Amalek was first among the nations, but he will come to ruin at last. Amen. So we see Esther.
pastor is interceding for the ruin of the Amalek spirit. But this is also our job before Adonai. The devil seeks to corrupt and kill all believers, especially Israel. Oh, yeah. yep. So the plan for your annihilation has been written long before the latest attempt to steal, kill, and destroy you and the call on your life. Now the Agagite plan and the spirit of Amalek has always been there. It's not a new occurrence. The devil has the same plan for all believers that he has always had for Israel. Now, just as salvation is first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles, yep. so is the enemy's plan first against Israel and then for all believers. Oh, come on. If you understand that, it will move you yeah. to yeah. intercede. Their heads are spinning. <laughs> when you understand that your older brother is taking the brunt of the beating, it ought to cause something to want to rise up in you. Yeah. Um, Why don't we get verse 4, Brother Linton? Then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. Oh, come on. Saints, this is just uh, one of the things that we love. We love that this mercy and grace that is being demonstrated, that is flowing from the presence of the king that represents Adonai himself, always causes you to rise and take your stand. Amen. Thanks. You've seen this progression. You remember when Esther was first contemplating coming into the king's presence. But the more that Esther comes into the king's presence, the more she is seen as rising to take a definitive stand. Yeah. We've gone way past doing that for herself. She's now taking a stand for her people. Yeah. Yeah. As members of the body of Messiah, we first came to him pleading, begging for our lives and redemption. But that's not where it stayed. Our confidence has now been built by His mercy and grace. Amen. Have you experienced that mercy yeah. and grace? Yes. Then your confidence ought to be rising inside yeah. of this house because your interaction with the King was meant to cause you to stand. Amen. We can now rise and take our stand for the will of God in this house. Amen. Somebody say, I'm going to rise and I'm going to take my stand. to get to this evening. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. We've been studying Esther for months now, and there's an important point in her request, that every commentary misses. Esther is asking for a complete reversal. And hear me here, the king completely ignores her request. Before you jump to conclusions, checking your little study Bibles out, that will all tell you that this is because of the irreversible Persian decrees, I want you to pause and just take a note that Xerxes, who represents Adonai, does not answer her question directly. We're going to trust you to take that note here, because we're going to talk about some other things. But I promise you, it's eminently important in the coming verses. Now, while you're taking that note, a fact that Xerxes does not directly answer her question. Have you ever asked the Lord to do something and he speaks to you regarding a totally different matter altogether? Yes. yes. Well, good. You're about to find out why. 
But we need to cover some other things first. Let's keep reading in verse 6. <laughs> For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? And how can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Man, these are two great questions. She specifically mentions bearing the calamity of her people or nation and the destruction of her family, as in her relatives. You know, this really should be the church's response regarding threats to Israel. How can you bear calamity coming upon the nation of Israel? How can you not be moved? How can you bear to see the destruction of your family and relatives? You know, for many, that answer is that they have never really thought of Israel as their nation or their family. Come on. That is because they are influenced by Haman, who wants all the blessing of Israel for himself and will steal them so that he can appropriate, appropriate them to himself. Now, no one who imitates Haman in this way will live to see the kingdom of God. They will be bagged and tagged like Haman. Double tapped. But let us wrestle with the truth that if Israel is not your nation and if the Jews are not your family through adoption, then you cannot be saved. Remember, the Bible is Israel dependent. Salvation belongs to the Jews and you can only be saved in their plan of redemption. Do not be confused in thinking that because many nationalities can be saved and that without circumcision... That you can be saved without fully identifying with God's people as a grafted in orphan. Yeah, man. Come on. We in this church, we understand that we are grafted into Israel. And Israel is our family. Yes. Amen. I want you to consider this slide. This slide is about intercession, prayer, lifting up your voice to the Lord for the sake of his nation, Israel. Number one says, when Israel sinned. Moses met God on the mountain and interceded for them in Exodus 32. He was even willing for God to blot him out of the book of life if that's what it took to rescue the nation. Number two on Mount Carmel, Elijah prayed for disobedient Israel. While they were in sin, he was praying and interceding for them. Number three in the palace, Nehemiah prayed for the Jews in Jerusalem. Their walls were torn down. Their city was in shambles. Number four, Ezra wept and prayed and asked God to help his sinful people in Ezra 9. Five, Daniel humbled himself. He fasted. He prayed that he might understand what God's plan was for Israel. That was Daniel 9, and you guys remember that. Number six is where we are tonight. Esther interceded with Xerxes for her people and her kindred, Israel. And finally, the last one. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul said he was willing to be accursed from Christ if it would help save unbelieving Israel in Romans chapter 9. That's Church, nothing about Gentile inclusion and Messiah has changed the fact that the whole plan of redemption belongs to Israel and the Jewish Messiah that is the head of their nation. We must, we have to adjust all of our thoughts on this matter 
to reflect the characters in the Bible in our attitude and desire. Now, in your own time, review the promises and curses associated with Genesis 12. Then read Zechariah 2 and consider that Israel is the apple of God's eye. Then when you finish your study in the writings, read Psalm 83. If you're a sincere believer, then those passages will help you make the adjustments. So this evening we do have a great deal that we want to get to, but I strongly suggest that you do go over those passages. Why don't we pick up in verse 7 as this progresses. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and may have hanged him on the gallows. <laughs> this passage is a lot of fun in the ESV, because it says Haman intended to lay hands on the Jews. <laughs> This is uh, fully reflective of Adonai's word. Jews are the apple of God's eyes, and blessing them brings Adonai's blessing upon you, while cursing them brings Adonai's curse upon you, almost like his hands being laid on you. All nations will be judged in relation to the treatment of Israel. It's a testimony that we don't have time to cover, but it's pervasive through the prophets. Do you remember that we asked you to note that Xerxes ignored Esther's request? Yeah. Yeah. You guys remember that? Yeah. Her request to reverse the decree of Haman for annihilation of God's people? What is he doing here instead of granting her request for reversal? Saints, he's reminding her of Haman's condemnation, the accuser that is now condemned, and her newly acquired status. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to think about that for a minute. So often we, as Christians, we ask Adonai to remove a difficult or crucifying force in our lives, and it seems as if he ignores the request. How about that? That is not because Adonai is unaware. It's not because Xerxes is unaware of the plot. It's because we're asking for the wrong thing. Both Xerxes and Adonai wisely remind you of your newly found status as step one in resolving your difficult situation. That is a good word. We tend to want the removal of harmful and opposing forces in our lives. But the truth is that we need them. And we need to remember who we are in them. Step one is becoming fully aware of our newfound status with the king. Amen. Your commentaries will lead you astray by focusing on the irreversible Persian decree. Xerxes does not mention the previous decree at all. He ignores her question and instead starts her on the only true path to a solution. Come on now. Step one is becoming fully aware of your newfound status yeah. with the king. Now, there are many reasons that Xerxes does not descend into a comment that says, I've already authorized a decree, and I can't change it, just like your commentaries will tell you. <laughs> One of them is that he represents Adonai in a shadow and type that the Spirit is faithful to preserve in this text. And I can tell you right up front, there's nothing that Adonai cannot do. Amen. Historically, 
It is also true that Xerxes is not going to draw us anyone's attention to the unfortunate decree of the past. But instead, he starts to focus his bride on the solution that begins as step one, understanding your newly found status. Amen. Now that you understand step one, let's move to step two in the very next verse. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. All right, so after reminding Esther of her newly found status in step one, he begins to speak to her about what she is empowered to do with her new status. Come on, Christian! Yeah. The ESV literally says, you may ask as you please, where the NIV says, as seems best to you. Christian, are you aware of what your newly found status has empowered you to do? Listen to John 14, 12 through 14. Very truly, I tell you, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So you may think to yourself, if I can ask for anything, hmm, then why can't I just ask for the removal of the hard, <laughs> oppressive decree of annihilation that makes me face crucifying events? Well, glad you're asked that question, because the answer is, that would not bring glory to the king, and it's not within his will to do so. So let's listen to John 12, 27 through 28. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No! no. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. What? For this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Xerxes is so much wiser than any of the commentators give him credit for. He does not need, honestly, we can't find any commentators that share our view. It's, it's honestly a little encouraging whenever we review those things. <laughs> but he does not need to go and resolve a wrong in the past. Instead, he has empowered the bride and Mordecai with a new status and authority to take care of themselves. Come on, man. <laughs> this is completely parallel with Adonai's dealings with the church. He does not remove the harmful, oppressive decree of annihilation that makes us face crucifying events. Instead, he gives us the status and authority in conjunction with Jesus to overcome them and bring glory to Adonai. Come on, somebody. Amen. We're 57 minutes in and only eight verses, but we have to ask. Are you like Esther in this regard? Do you have a tendency to ask your king to fix problems that he has given you the status and authority to fix Absolutely. already? Yes. 
Are you waiting for Adonai to solve a problem that he has already empowered you to solve and it's sitting on your doorstep? Yes. yes. Absolutely. When we view our trouble or difficulty as an evil that Adonai must remove, Ooh. it is tantamount to blaming Adonai for its presence in the first place. Uh-oh. Wow. This view diminishes the king and leaves the bride in a powerless place of victimhood that cannot glorify the king in any way. But we, we in this house are going to grab hold of our new status because it is step one to curing the problem. We are then going to issue decrees based on the king's word that allow us to overcome the situations that are before us. Esther and Mordecai did this in union with one another and you will do this in union with Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Are you ready to get to the irrevocable decrees? Notice, Xerxes still does not refer to the Persian practice of irrevocable decrees regarding Haman's decree sent forth in this conversation at all. That's not what's in reference in this conversation, even a little bit, despite what your study notes say. In fact, he only refers to the bride's new status and authority. And then... After talking about her new status, her new authority, then he says a decree sent forth in his name is irrevocable. It's as if he's saying that Esther and Mordecai's decree will be irrevocable. I'm not denying that earlier in the book a decree was irrevocable. What I'm telling you is that the commentators put the emphasis in all of the wrong places. The point here is that Esther and Mordecai have the same status and power to send forth an irrevocable decree themselves. You want to hear something amazing? And so do you. When you act in the king's name and according to his word, in conjunction with Messiah, you send forth an irrevocable decree. Step one is understand your newly found status. Step two is that you can send forth an irrevocable declaration. It's called God's word. It's done in his name. It is based on what you have heard you have authority to do in the king's presence, in the king's word. And Haman can't stop it. Amen. He's dead. Now, if you thought this couldn't get any better, you were wrong. Let's pick up in verse 9. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. What month? Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. <laughs> all right, so we want you to see a slide. And what we're going to... That's one of the longest sentences in all of the Bible. <laughs> 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 we're going to start looking and counting days. So the 13th of Nisan to the 23rd of Sivan. So there were two decrees that stood virtually opposed to one another and they both happened within the sovereignty of the king. There was a decree of annihilation that was given on the 13th of Nisan. 
And then we have the decree of assembly and protection on the 23rd of Sivan. So when we count the days from the 13th of Nisan to the 13th of Ayar, which is the next month, is 30 days. From the 13th of Ayar to the 13th of Sivan, which is the month after that, is 30 days. And that brings us to a total of what? 60 days. From the 13th of Sivan to the 23rd of Sivan is 10 days. So 60 plus 10 is 70 days. And 70 is an important number, isn't it? Listen to Daniel 9 too. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. You hear the same number, 70. So what this is hinting at is that there is a time interval being hinted here that indicates moving from desolation to redemption. Wow. Let me lay this out for you practically, saints, because I can see you're like, oh, yeah, they made a slide. Well, well, cool. We made a slide. There is an irrevocable decree that stands opposed to your welfare in the kingdom of God. It's been out there since before you were born. But there is also the ability for you to issue an irrevocable decree from the king's presence and the word of God about your future. It is literally a time of testing, an interval of testing, to see who will give up on their decree first. I recognize that your circumstances, I recognize that your difficulties are telling you that there is a reality other than what the word of God says. But when God says it to you, that ought to settle it no matter how long the interval is. Is that not enough? Consider for a moment that Savan is the third month in the year. And Purim is not going to take place until the 12th month. There is roughly nine months. Mm. Nine months. Does that have any significance to any women in the house tonight? How you doing? There is roughly nine months between the decree of assembly and protection until deliverance is birthed. That's right. About the same time that Mary spent in gestation with Jesus. Ooh, set on that for a second, okay? Because we're throwing a lot at you. There is an existing king of the world that was already in place when Mary was conceived by the Holy Ghost. His name was Augustus Caesar. But there is another irreversible decree, and it's gestating in that faithful Jew. And she'll be called blessed among all women forever because God will never revoke what he's done inside of her womb that the world is about to find out about. Now tell me, Christian, what has God conceived of in you that came from his presence that is an irrevocable decree and you have to outlast the usurping kings of this world? He doesn't remove them. He just plants his irrevocable decree inside of you, and you remove them. So the timing of all these events is a vivid portrayal of the process of salvation. Did you know that that Savan is the month that the law was given? 
Uh-oh. Oh. What? Let's look at Exodus 19, 1 and 2. In the third month, Savon, after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim. They entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. The Israelites left Egypt in the month of Nisan and arrived at the mountain of God in the third month of the year called Sivan. This edict of assembly and protection is going out in the same month that Israel originally received the Torah. Now, if that's not enough, then consider that Sivan is also the month that the Feast of Pentecost occurs in. Israel received the Torah and the Spirit in the month of Sivan. Somebody say Sivan is a very good month. Sivan is a very good month. The same month that all of this is occurring in in Esther is the month that the Bible documents that the law was given and then 1,600 years later... Pentecost occurred and the Spirit was poured out and something was born anew on the earth. Tell me that's not significant. Perhaps we need to consider that step one is understanding our newfound status. Step two is learning to issue a decree in accordance with the word and will of Adonai and in conjunction with Messiah. And step three is that we are filled with the Spirit of Holiness and are empowered to fight back against the corruption and killing that Amalek pervades in all of the world. Somebody say, fight back! back. You have a spirit rising in you that says, because of the mercy, because of the grace I've received in the presence of the king, I will take my new status. I will take this new ability to stand on an irrevocable decree, and I'll fight back! Come on, man! While you're contemplating that in the same month God gave his people his word, in the same month he gave them his spirit that was the power to go to the nations, that in the same month was when a decree was issued for Jews to assemble and fight for the kingdom of God and ensure that the promises proceed. If that's not enough for you, then we want you to consider just a little further. This decree goes out first to the Jews and then to the satraps, the governors, and the nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, which ought to remind you of a slide from the Celestial Powers teaching. This slide was taken from the wording of this decree as it is stated in Esther chapter 9. So in Esther chapter 8, the decree is worded. In Esther chapter 9, same order, same everything, slightly different words. Yeah, frankly, we didn't want to remake the slide. It was yeah. made from chapter 9. <laughs> but so that you catch it again, the decree went out to the Jews and then radiated out to princes, satraps, governors, those doing the king's business, I believe as Nazbe put it. Ephesians 1 and 6 describe rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual dominators that we are at war with. Saints, who did the message go out to first? The Jews. Jews. And then that message that they received, that was within them, radiated out to every other power in dominion. It is clear that this decree, happening at Pentecost, puts the nations and the celestial powers that are controlling them 
on notice all at once that the sons of God had received a decree. Oh, the you've gone and done it now. Yeah. You've gone and done it now. They have a new status, a new authority, and a new empowerment to fight back, and that decree is radiating where they all get to hear what is happening to Israel. What did the people receive in Acts 1.8? The spirit and an empowerment. Let's revisit Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Come on. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Every one of these men and women in Acts 2 were Jewish. And they were standing in a new status, a new authority. And they're receiving a clothing with power that the nations and the celestial powers over the nations are now going to have to contend with. Oh, yeah. Verse 5 says, Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Man, this is just like when Haman's decree had gone out in Esther 3. The state of the whole city was said to be in bewilderment, just like in Acts 2.6. But the newfound status, the new authority, and the new empowerment quickly moves the believing Jews to amazement. Come on. Verse 7 goes on to say, utterly amazed. Come on. They asked. Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Guys, this shows us the things that are being displayed in Esther, they are not just the status, authority, and empowerment of the Jewish people. No, not just that. It's more than that. The event itself is going to have an effect on every nation and on the celestial powers oh, that are ruling them. Oh, yeah. Consider what Paul tells all believers. This is Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. So church, whose stand is it? Our. Yeah! Uh, 
conjunction with Mordecai. Then power fills us from the king to fight back. We declare that Amalek will not overcome us. We will not be destroyed, but we will liberate others. And and we are putting the celestial powers on notice. (laughs) we got to do verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, you may have noticed the groupings that Paul addresses are the same as the ones enumerated in Esther 8 and Esther 9. Thanks, we are in a physical struggle, but one that has spiritual implications. Esther 8, verse 9 can be likened to Pentecost and Ephesians 6 with the levels of governmental authorities that we now have the power to fight back against. This is much like Paul in Acts 9 in Ephesus. They're crying out for the sake of their deities because the gospel is advancing. In Esther, the scribes wrote in the king's name to all languages. You catch that connection? This put the nations and the celestial powers on notice that we now have the law and the spirit. It has been sent out in a way where it cannot be missed every tribe, tongue, and nation. These things were both given in the month of Saban, the same month as this decree that we can assemble and that we can fight, that we are able to defend ourselves as the people of God. You have been given tools to fight back, LCM, and the enemy knows that you do. You don't realize what you have day to day. God knows, and your enemy knows. But we must awaken to it. Our first step is to grab hold of our new status, who he's made us to be in the standing he's placed us in. Our second step is to make a declaration that is in conjunction with Messiah and his will and demand that his will be done. Our third step is to recognize our right to assemble And our right to fight back is empowered by the spirit of the Almighty God. Are y'all bored? No. It's clear that the book of Esther is not inspired, right? (laughs) Let's pick up in verse 10. (laughs) Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses especially great for the king. Do we have any ESV fans in here? Yeah. yeah. That's good. You're going to like this next slide. Let's look at it together. Same verse, ESV. <laughs> I thought you might like that. We didn't want you to miss this, so we titled the slide for you. Thank you. The royal stud. <laughs> and he wrote in the name of King Asahuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses, that were used in the service of the king. Bread from the royal stud! My God, Christian! You were bread from a royal stud! The strength of Esther is that she was connected to a royal stud named Mordecai. Your strength comes from your connection to Yeshua, who is the ultimate royal stud. 
You are like a mounted courier carrying the gospel that gives us status, authority, and the ability to fight back. You are like a swift horse in the king's service that can't stop, won't stop, until the whole world knows. You are a stud bred from the royal stud. Even if this does not describe you presently tonight, you have to ask, what makes somebody a royal stud? Well, it's when they've awoken to what the king has already given them. It's when they've become couriers carrying the written word with the authority the king has already given them. If you're not a stud yet, Wake up to what you already have been given and you will be a royal star. He does not cancel the existing realities of our world. He gives you a new status. He gives you the ability to stand on the irrevocable decree of his word. And he gives you the empowerment to do something about the competing realities in this world. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is anyone in Christ in in this world? If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us we implore you on Christ's behalf Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to us, church. When you wake up to your new status, when you wake up to your new authority, and when you wake up to the empowerment of the spirit, then you become a royal stud. You function as an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And you then take people from every nation and you make them a part of the people of God. Come on, church. We're trying to wake you up. Church, you have the power to make, to create, to form royal studs that are just like you. Listen to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God. To obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. Come on. For everyone born of God. Raise your hand if you have been born of God. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Church, tonight, you cannot be overcome by the world. You can't be overcome by the world and its systems because you are royal studs. You are born and bred 
from Christ Jesus himself. Amen. Guys, this is our victory. And guess what? It's going to be their victory as well. Because yes. we're going to take the edict to them and we're going to make more of who we are. Since you cannot cancel the realities that are existent in the world, what we do is we raise a generational stable of royal studs that have their own irreversible decree and we overcome the existing reality. granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. Right to assemble. If you didn't understand this before COVID, then you do now if you've been in this body. <laughs> when the people of God are faithful to obey the word of God, then even the Persian law begins to reflect our right to assemble together yeah. and our right to be spiritually armed. Spiritually armed! Spiritually armed. This is reflected in the United States Bill of Rights as well. The first and second amendments are the right to bear arms and the right to assemble. We're concerned about... I wonder where they got that, Peyton. I wonder where they got that idea. Well, they probably believe that the book of Esther is not inspired, so maybe they just pulled it from somewhere else. We're concerned about those rights in the country that we, that we live in. But tonight, we are more concerned with them as a universal and spiritual law. Yeah. The church must assemble and must be armed spiritually. Oh, come on. Do you want to assemble in this house? Yes. yes. Do you want to be armed in this house? Yes. And yes. listen to Hebrews 10, 23 with me. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? Because it's an irreversible decree. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Saints, the Jewish people regained their God-given right to assemble with each other. They did it in the book of Esther. This was necessary because of the hostile forces that surrounded them. The same is true for the people of God in our day and our time. We must take this right seriously. If we don't take it seriously and appreciate it, it will be taken. So we must fight for it. We must fight by gathering together. It is the beginning of being able to defend ourselves, spiritually Come speaking. On. But it is just the beginning. We have more to go. Yeah. It's not enough to simply assemble. Second yeah. Corinthians 6 and verse 7 says, In truthful speech and in the power of God, yeah. with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory, and dishonor, bad report, and good report, genuine, yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We are going to learn to advantage ourselves of our newly found status 
that Adonai has given us. Amen. We will make declarations of truthful speech in conjunction with Messiah. It's an irreversible decree. We will be rich in the spirit so that we possess everything that truly matters. And then those things that fight back against us, we will see their annihilation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the truth is, everything that truly matters is found in the spirit and the word of God. And we can use those things to fight back against the annihilation of men's souls. Amen. We have the right. Somebody say, I have the right. I have the right. In this written decree is the right to plunder the enemy. You understand that? And yet we choose to deny ourselves the worldly stuff. We don't want it. We will be satisfied to simply take their captives from them. Because it's being piled up for us, the worldly stuff, for the age to come anyway. I don't want to be rewarded now. I want to spend my time taking the captives now. My reward will come after the resurrection. Amen. Amen. Pick up in verse 12. The day appointed for the Jews to do this is in all the provinces of the king. Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. What day did it say it was the day to do this? The 13th day. The 13th day. So the edict... To, to plunder and defend themselves was actually for one day. But if you've read ahead in Esther, and you have, it actually ends up being on the 14th day as well. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah. This is because when you are a royal stud born and bred of God, he delights in your activities, and the king extends your time frame. Amen. Come on, somebody! Yeah. He gives you more time to do what you need to do to accomplish his will. This ought to remind you of Joshua's long day. This is Joshua 10, 12 through 14. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Come on, my brothers and sisters. We do not need to ask for the removal of our crucifying circumstances. We don't need to ask for the removal of those things. We need to stand up in the resurrection power that is present in us from our God. Come on! If we ask for anything, it will be more time to complete his work that he's destined for us to do. Our king will grant it because of our newfound status and authority. We will ask in his name, and he will grant our request that his people they might be saved. Come on. The beautiful part is that in both Esther and Joshua 10 that we just read, Gentiles are being saved too, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Verse 13, 
copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. To avenge themselves on their enemies. You know, fancy Christian pacifists seem to have a problem with this verse. <laughs> but we're not going to go down that road or teach you about priest, protector, provider, because many of you are very familiar with it. Instead, we're going to share, you a few, share a few insights from Pastor Ken Ortiz that will help you discern your own heart in every matter. Look at this slide with us. It says, retribution versus retaliation. Now, is there a seeming contradiction? These are very distinct words. Sure. Retribution is a basis of life. See these references from Matthew 7 and Psalm 18. It means a deserved punishment, return for evil done, or sometimes good. Retaliate, Latin literally, to pay back, means to pay back a wrong or injury, return life for life, usually to return evil for evil. So our next slide here is going to further this point. Retaliation versus retribution. We wanted to quickly give you some characteristics. Retaliation is a negative thing. It has to do with your own personal need for agreements to be settled. Amoral, as in without morality. Whatever you deem to be fit. It's punitive. Well, this happened to me, so I want to punish them. It's filled with anger, bitterness, vindictiveness, wrathful or human emotion. Retribution, however, stems from God himself and is entirely different. It's positive. It is impersonal. It is moral. It is consequential. It is the result of evil deeds. It's dispassionate in the sense that it is not based on the whims of emotions. It's judicious. It's just. It's self-controlled. It is godlike. Saints, it is never a bad idea to go through these concepts when trying to discern your own Part. This is true in verbal confrontations, witnessing, and even physical defense. What we want you to notice here is that Israel, they didn't retaliate. This was divine retribution. They waited for the king to give the order. The God of all creation arranged this event. It was not their retaliation out of their own will. It was God responding to the threat, and it was his divine righteous retribution at work. But we're always not so good, not always so good at distinguishing between them. So these are things that we must evaluate so that we can stand with his decree. Why don't we move on to verse 14. The couriers, riding the royal horses, raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Wow. You poor royal studs seem sleepy tonight. Oh, no. <laughs> If you haven't noticed tonight, we're trying to spur you on by the king's command. You're called to be royal studs, and we urge you in every way to make all speed in the application of the principles that we are teaching. We want to give you a hint. The first three steps in our race. You need to take step number one and grab hold of your new status in Christ. No more low thinking about yourself. 
No more low living with yourself. No more this is the way I've always been. You have a new status. Take step number two. Make a declaration in conjunction with Messiah. Find out what his word says that is irreversible and take your stand on that word. It does not eliminate the other realities around you. It ignores them and overruns them from behind and tramples them under your royal studly feet. Take step three and recognize your right to assemble in here and your right to fight back as empowered by the Spirit. You don't have to lay down and take it anymore. You don't have to be subject to those old crappy thoughts anymore. Grab hold of your royal, irrevocable decree. Then you will really be taking advantage of your right to assemble. You'll share it with each other. You'll strengthen each other. And you'll increase the royal stud in this stable. Then you take advantage of the right to assemble and you arm yourselves spiritually. Our goal is that there would not be a weakling in this room that does not know their new status and live in it. Our goal is that there would not be one person who is wimpy and impotent in their use of the authority of God's word. Our goal in this room is that you outlast the existing realities by trampling over them with your royal feet. When we come together, we are arming one another. I know that every day you see things that tell you the opposite, but you are of a royal line. You are bred of a royal stud, and you tune your ear to the royal decree. You do not have to have somebody cancel Haman for you. It is your job. We are the household servants. Bag him and tag him and move on. Well, church, we could stop right here. But wait, there's more. Let's pick up in verse 15. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue oh, yeah. and white. Shut up! A large crown of gold and purple, of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. Yeah. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. Man, we want to focus in on this imagery because... The imagery of Mordecai having gone from no beauty or majesty into this position is so much like Jesus that we could spend the entire night on comparisons. But for now, we want to share a few. Exodus 28, verse 6 through 7, it lists the same materials and colors. It says, make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn. Where have you seen those colors? And of finely twisted linen, the work of a skilled craftsman. There's something you need to notice about these things. Every Jew wore a talit made with blue and white linen, according to Numbers 15, 37. But the high priest wore an ephod of gold and of blue and of purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen. Mordecai is being described in the colors and raiment of the high priest. So go down a couple verses in Exodus chapter 28 and find verse 15. Fashion a breastpiece for making decisions. 
the work of a skilled craftsman. Make it like the ephod of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen. So in addition to the ephod, the high priest wore a breast piece with all the same elements being associated with Mordecai. So in every way, Mordecai is prefiguring the kingship and priesthood of Jesus under Adonai. It is also noteworthy that the national flag of Israel is also comprised of both blue and white to this day. So what is being displayed in this story is that Mordecai ends up dressed in kingly and priestly garments as a Messiah figure. Esther is honored as a royal bride. The people of Israel rejoice greatly and many Gentiles are grafted in to the faith. This is the story of the cross, Pentecost, and the early church. Now, I don't want to rush through that part. And we only have 15 minutes left. You remember that in the last chapter, Mordecai was going to be crucified, but instead Haman was? That is a sin offering for the people. That's what happens. The accuser is defeated at the cross. The very next chapter, we have a Pentecostal experience and an empowerment of the people with the spirit and the word to go save lives of their nation and any nation that would join with their nation. This is exactly what happens in the early church. Immediately after the crucifixion, where Jesus is both a righteous man like Mordecai and he is a sin offering made to be sin for us. Like Haman, we move directly into a Pentecostal experience. And you know what? The early church body was made up mostly of Jews and also of those Gentile orphans grafted into them and their national destiny. That is the picture that Esther is displaying. Church, if that doesn't convince you that this book was written at the hand of God, I don't know what would. One of our favorite contrasts is the difference of the effect that Haman's edict had on Susa and the edict that uh, we read about in chapter 8. So this is Esther 3.15, and we have a slide for you. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Contrast that with where we're at in chapter 8. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. So, if you're not getting this, it's okay. That's why we're here. Jesus sat down with the devil next to him and they shared a cup of wine. And the city was in bewilderment. But when the next decree came out, the whole city was in a joyous celebration because they now had a new status. They now had a new authority. They now had a decree that the devil couldn't revoke. They were royal stars. Yes. Oh. Thanks, the word of God has repeating 
patterns that are constantly speaking a message so that we don't miss the point. Esther is unique in the way that this is displayed. If you consider the path of Mordecai up to this slide, we have Mordecai who represents a suffering servant on behalf of Israel, an innocent man who is suffering for God's righteous standards. He doesn't even cry out, but he's delivered. Then we have Mordecai presented as a royal monarch leaving the king's palace, arrayed like he's from the tribe of Judah somehow. But he's also wearing priestly garments at the same time. And then what he does is he issues a decree, a proclamation of good news that changes the hearts of the people of God and brings joy to the city of God. Can I tell you in the weeks to come, we're going to see that same message spread through his disciples. What is coming is beautiful. Verse 16 is something that we want to hit and pause on momentarily. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. Look, I want you to understand, they have not been delivered yet. They just have the message of the good news. They know it because it's a reality inside of them now. God has done something and it showed up in four attributes. Not just that they were happy, not just that they had joy, gladness, or honor, but all four. Thanks, these attributes are the markers of triumphant believers who have a reality in them now, although it has not yet been fulfilled. Look, we would like to rest here a little longer, but I want to suggest that you take a few minutes to study these words. You might even find parallels to descriptors in 2 Timothy 3.16. They're not just repetitions in English. It's speaking about something rising in men who believe God's decree before they've seen it come to pass. The first hint is it's not happiness and joy. It's light and joy. Gladness and honor. However you want to take this, and we'll leave it for you to study in your own time, if you actually believe that the word of God is irrevocable to you, If you actually believe that it's a present reality regardless of your situation, then when you're standing looking at the word of God and the reality all around you is that Haman's decree is trying to kill you and Amalek is all over the place, you will rise up in your royal status. You will take hold of the authority that you have. Come on. You will march out to share it with other people. Come on. And everyone will know it's true because of the light in your eye, the joy in your heart, the gladness in your conversation, and the honor with which you bestow the king. It does not honor your king at all for you to sit around as a victim and wonder why he has not removed difficulty from your life. He is waiting for you to stand up and drive that darkness out. It all starts with your status, though. If you've been a Christian for one year or 50 years and you still do not understand and live in your identity in Christ, it'll show up in these four markers. You'll be distinctly without light, distinctly without joy, distinctly without gladness, distinctly without honor. But if you grab hold of the irreversible decree of the king, then you will be marked by these four things in everything that you do. But we don't have time to go into that. Let us finish our verse. In every province and in every city, 
wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews. Oh, yeah. With feasting yeah. and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because of the fear of the Jews had seized them. Man, do you see how this perpetuates throughout the nation? Because of these men, they did these things, other men begin to do it as well. Look, tonight, if you would like to live as the royal stud that you were meant to be, if you would like to see the results that the book of Esther displays, then this is what you must do. You must take step one and grab a hold of your new status. Not just believe it, not just recite it, but actually walk in your new status. This is happening in my life, but the word says this about me, so I am going to walk this way, regardless of whether I feel like it or not. Amen. Step two, you must make a declaration in conjunction with Messiah. You must stand on the irrevocable decree that the word of God has already made about you. My situation looks like this, but the word says that this is going to happen, and you must take hold of it. You must take step three and recognize your right to assemble and fight back as empowered by the Spirit. Many times we don't do that because we're not doing step one and step two. I can tell you that many of us have a little bit more fight left in us. Many of us must recognize that we can Fight back and assemble with our brothers and stand as one and do this. We then take advantage of our right to assemble. We come here expecting that we are in wartime. It is our right to assemble and we are going to stand stronger together. And we then take advantage of the assembly. And we arm ourselves spiritually. We begin to encourage one another to do the same. We begin to lift each other up arm each other spiritually, and then we take the fight to the enemy. We're going to hand it over to the pastors. All men and women of God, rise and stand to your feet. Are you awake now? What we're going to do is continue to stay awake with these truths. You've just been armed with wisdom understanding and knowledge from his word and by the spirit of how to fight and win. Are you going to fight and win? Yes! We're going to do this together. That step one is such a crucial importance. Grabbing hold of the reality of the newfound status that you have, it is designed to drive out every lie that Haman wants to whisper or shout in your ear. Stand up to it. Rebuke it. Don't let it have resonance inside your mind or your soul. Then we're going to gather our constitution, our force around the authority found in the irrevocable irrevocable decree of God's word. Let it dwell in you richly. Let it come out of your mouth abundantly. Let let the decree dominate every feeling and the reaction that you have. Stand up in the empowerment that the Spirit of God is already inside of you. You are anointed. You are empowered to be His courier. And standing as one of the royal studs that comes from the royal stud. 
Take confidence in that. You are the apex predator. God puts you here to represent who he is. And we're not going to let anything inside of us or outside of us diminish that. What you're doing right now is you're taking your right to assemble. That's what you're doing right now. And the effect is that you are being armed with what you need to then go out and fight and win. We're going to fight and win together. Now as we pray, please, please don't have anything less than a triumphant and victorious attitude. If you don't feel it, force it in the name of Jesus. Come on, let's pray. Mighty God, we come and we stand in our new status with you. Lord, we take the authority and we make declarations that are in accordance with your word and with Messiah. God, we walk empowered now, Lord, taking advantage of the assembly and being armed with your power, with your forcefulness, Lord, that we will overcome every act of Haman, every act of Satan, because you are with us and we are yours, Lord. Let us walk in this status. Let us walk in the authority. Let us walk in your empowerment right now and every day here forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.